what I would say to anyone listening is everyone needs more of us in the room, more women in the room, period, the end. Because if there's more of us, then we see each other, then we're less in our heads. We suffer from less of that anxiety. We suffer from less of that analysis paralysis of, should I say something? Should I not say something? That guy's gonna get mad at me. These are the thoughts that go through our heads. This is In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Andrea Gallego. In each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital, business, and technology. In this episode, we're speaking with Sita Santi, partner and associate director of Aerospace at BCG. Sita joins the BCG team after spending time at SpaceX as an executive of human spaceflight. And in addition to her work on aerospace and spaceflight, her career spans security, defense, and foreign policy. She's a high-profile leader in a fascinating area of technology, a single mom to two children, and a passionate mentor and advocate for the representation of women and people of color in technology. She's also an executive board member for the organization Women in Aerospace. We're also so pleased that our colleague, Adi Zolotov, also known as Dr. Z, was able to host this conversation. Adi is a partner and associate director of BCG Gamma for data science. She's an expert in high-performance computing, machine learning algorithms, and operationalizing data science in service to national security. Her focus is on helping aerospace, defense, and industrial goods companies leverage AI for their most pressing problems. We're so grateful to have Sita and Adi join us for this episode. Here's the conversation. All right. Hi. It is so great to be here with you today, guest hosting an episode of the In Her Element podcast. So I wanted to start with you sharing with our audience a little bit of your background and your career path leading up to this current role. Thank you, Adi. Um, I'll start off by saying my background is non-linear and highly geometric, um, which is both very appropriate for the aerospace. That's like a really weird space nerd joke, but it's also, it has the benefit of being true. I am not an engineer. I am not a technocrat. I'm not a, any person with a technical background. However, what I find especially interesting about the aerospace industry in general and Boston Consulting Group in particular and how it approaches the aerospace industry is a recognition increasingly of the importance of having a variety of backgrounds to inform what the future growth can look like of that industry. So in my case, I'll start from the beginning, I suppose. Born in the United States, raised between the U.S. and India, resulting in a what I describe as a global perspective or a global citizenship point of view, which ended up with me studying political science and economics in college and international relations and international economics in grad school. I spent 18, almost 18 years as a career foreign service officer with the State Department. And because I had already studied Arabic in graduate school, I ended up spending the early part of my foreign service tenure in hotspots or sandboxes, as we would call them, Egypt, Iraq, Syria, Libya, and a couple of stints in policy work here in Washington, working on the Iraq desk, on Iraq policy, and then on leading Syria policy a couple of administrations ago. Those sandbox experiences demanded not only a lot of interaction with the aerospace and defense industry and the United States military, 
but perhaps more specifically, at least a high level enough understanding of the technology in order to be effectively informed on how that aerospace technology can be an effective tool of foreign policy for the United States. So it's not an easy transition to go from being a diplomat who speaks seven languages and has lived in nine countries to being an aerospace executive. But if there were a short, again, nonlinear, somewhat geometrical way to describe how and why that occurred, this is that description. I love that for so many reasons. Given that background and all of the exposure and experience, I'm guessing you had a lot of opportunities to take your career into different places. I'm really curious to hear from your perspective why the aerospace industry is where you want to be right now. I've tried to proselytize about how space is going to be a fundamental part of the supply chain for every industrial company around the world. What I mean by that is companies are increasingly going to look towards satellite connectivity as their main means of providing connectivity for large infrastructure. They're going to increasingly look towards earth observation and potentially data analytics on top of that earth observation to predict, all right, this is what the last three months have looked like in my facility from an earth observation standpoint based on imagery we've collected. What do we expect the next three months can look like? How can we predict some of those outcomes in order to identify what the efficiencies might be that are available to us so we can cut costs and maybe even lower our carbon footprint, right? I see you smiling because I know this is your wheelhouse. So I love coming up with ideas where you and I can partner. I really enjoy that. But I proselytize about how space is not only a theoretical possibility for the value chain for all of commercial industry, but is going to become a reality in that sense. And because of that, the technology is still being developed to have really low-cost satellite connectivity based out of low-Earth orbit that can provide a dedicated network for a large oil corporation or that can provide rural remote connectivity for farmers, right? Like the end-use cases are, are endless, but that technology is evolving so rapidly the investment market is meeting that rapid uh, technology coming online with a lot of capital. And at the end of the day, I think we stand to benefit by informing those transactions ahead of time, by shaping them, and by guiding the technology in a way that is responsible and sustainable, both for the non-terrestrial space environment, but also our terrestrial environment here on Earth. I think what's really exciting about your field is... You might be an expert in aerospace, but the intersection of it is with so many things that touch our lives, right? Climate change, sustainability, communications, bandwidth, supply chain. I think that's just super exciting. I want to talk about the first time I met you, if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> we were... In a client meeting, C-suite-like briefing, I'm nearly certain I was the only woman in the room. And then you came rushing in. And I was just so excited to see another woman. We did introductions. You had just joined BCG from SpaceX, where you were the executive leading human space flight. flight. Yep. And when you stood up to go, I realized you were wearing... 
hot pink shoes. Yes. I love that you remember that. And (laughs) I caught you in the parking lot and we started chatting and I realized right away that you were just an awesome supporter and wanted to connect and wanted to mentor and wanted to sponsor women and, and really wanted to engage on the topic of diversity and inclusion in the workplace. So I wonder if there's women out there listening to this episode and just thinking, yeah, I just, I could never do that. Is there anything you could share with us about your experience in this space? In this case, for me personally, developing a knowledge base to an adequate level of personal confidence where I felt I could speak about it with authority in public settings was step one to enter the space, if you will. But step two was, how do I leverage my knowledge base to transition to industry? Because doing so in a government capacity is one thing, but doing so in industry where everyone else are the engineers and they're the ones that actually make the tech or design the tech or are trying to problem solve the tech. In a way, part of it was serving as, or trying to identify like, what was my skill set? What was my value add? And in industry, I decided I'm going to be the advocate. I'm going to be, in effect, the translator. I mean, Lord knows as a diplomat speaking a bunch of languages, you spend a lot of time translating, right? I'm going to be the translator of this technology into real world use cases. How do we use this? And why is this a threat versus this not being a threat? And just telling those stories and being an advocate for the engineers who make the technology was where I decided my little niche could be. So to demystify it, anyone who thinks that you have to have an advanced, you know, a PhD in engineering, I revere, I revere people who make this technology, including you, Adami, your your background is extraordinary to me. And I get a little bit of a girl crush when I think about it. And I'll be honest, if I can play a small role in translating how that's applied or usable to folks who can't understand it on its merits, then hopefully that is my value add and that's my value proposition to that space. I wonder, this is certainly the case for me, I wonder if it was for you, if you went through a period where imposter syndrome was holding you back. Curious if that was part of your experience as you entered a field where there was just not a lot of folks who looked like you and with your same background. I just swallowed some truth serum. I still suffer imposter syndrome to this day. That is something that has stayed with me for, what, 22 years, almost 23 years of professional experience. And I say that as someone who can actually speak on certain technologies in more than one foreign language. English is a second language for me. So I almost have to say these statements to remind myself that I deserve a seat at the table. And you're spot on. So... Yes, imposter syndrome is real. Yes, there is a delta between authority versus confidence. And I think the the greatest thing is to be able to have other champions in the room, both literally and virtually and in our orbits, that can every now and then speak to you and say, oh, no, no, not only what you did had every merit in being communicated, but you should have been the one to communicate it. And you did right by doing so. I think having that consistent feedback loop is is what it takes to dismantle the periodic episodes of imposter syndrome for all of us. So I heard two things there, both of which really resonated. The first is imposter syndrome is not a period in your life. 
that you just lock behind you if you study enough, earn enough, get invited to enough things. The other thing you said that really resonated was you used the word champions. From your experiences, what can organizations in this space be doing better to recruit, retain, and support people like you and I and and diverse talent that these sectors really need? I would say one of the greatest things that successful organizations do is be willing to lean in in terms of not only recruiting, but advancing promotion potential. The reason for why that should be in place is as follows. I can't tell you how many times I sat on promotion panels, both within my government and my industry experience, having you know led teams and evaluated potential for promotion. The coded commentary for many male colleagues goes like this. Oh, he's really leaning in. This person really has the potential to showcase that skill. So therefore, we're going to award the bonus, increase the base pay, or change the title on the basis of potential. The female person who's, or I should say, the leader who happens to be female, the coded commentary goes as follows. How long has she really been in that role, though? She's only been in that role for a year. Note the difference. And so because we know that the coding is such in the commentary, we really have to, as successful organizations, identify if someone has the promotion potential, you promote them. That's actually the basis. And we don't look at tenure, we look at potential, and we have to be as equitable in those two criteria as possible. Allies can be at any and at every step in the pyramid or in the ladder of success. In this question of promotion um, on the basis of potential, I find that you often really have to advocate for yourself and say, I have the potential to do this. Yeah, look at me. I can do this. And I find that women are not as good at doing that as men are. Men tend to... I'm speaking generally, right? But but men tend to say, put me in coach a lot earlier. And we know, right, that men respond to a job application, even if they only hit five out of 10 requirements and women want to hit all 10, right? All 10 and then add five more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as I think about sponsors, champions, mentors, I have found that although I've had great sponsors, mentors, and champions who are men, my best ones, the ones which were most effective at propelling my career were women because they knew how to talk to me and address some of those things, right? So I, I sometimes I wonder, like, are there handbooks, right? Like, is, is there like a company handbook on how to be a great sponsor, how to be a great mentor to a diverse workforce? My most successful mentors and champions, by and large, were women, without question. They understood what my own challenges might be, what I might be doing to hold myself back, and then separate them as distinct from the challenges being presented by the other person or persons in the room, right? Sifting through all of that is not always intuitive. It's not always obvious. And that's part of the handbook that you're talking about. If you make 
you absolutely cannot get a raise or a bonus or a performance review or anything unless you have successfully mentored or been an ally to someone. If you make that a competition, if you incentivize people at all levels to not only do that, but do that well, I wonder if it's going to make folks, men and women, by the way, people of color or not, disabled or not, every religion, every sexual orientation, every et cetera, et cetera, I think it'll incentivize us to slow down and listen and ask more questions so that we as a whole and as organizations can start to treat the allyship process as one that is much more for the other person. Like we'll just actually care more to be better at it. We've talked about a lot of different identities. You're a mom. (laughs) Yes. I'm a mom. Yeah. (laughs) And for me, that transition was quite interesting. I'd been used to being, you know, one of the few women in the room. And then I became a mom and then realized, whoa, that it's really thinning out my population. (laughs) So I'd love to hear you know, a little bit about how being a mom has or hasn't impacted your career. I'd love to hear a little bit about your family because I know that your kids do amazing things and you're super proud of them. <laughs> and a little bit about if you have thoughts about what organizations can do to better support parents, not just women, but, but parents in balancing work and family life. I'm a single mom. I have a son. My son, Jerem, is 14. My daughter, Ananda, is turning 12 in a few weeks. And both of these kids were born during overseas stints for me. So that meant medevacs. It meant going back to work when each of them was about six or seven weeks old. It meant being a first-time parent for me in, of all places, Libya, where my telephone line was cut daily by the local security services. So I couldn't just hop on a Skype, it was Skype at the time, to talk to my mom to say, my baby just did this, what does this mean and what can I do about it? I also think there is a level of difficulty in adapting back to a set of expectations for productivity. I really emphasize this word productivity because I actually think of it as like a bad word. I think to measure people based on their productivity is actually the completely wrong framing. And if organizations tie their metrics of success to how many hours you spent or how many tasks you performed or how many slides you wrote or how many meetings you attended, then that's just the wrong measurement. The right measurement of success is what was the value added? What was the impact? Because you can be just as impactful in 30 seconds as you can be in 30 minutes. And I would say it was only after not only becoming a mother, but changing careers and changing jobs as a mother in multiple countries and then obviously multiple industries that demanded that I just be better with my time. One thing that I struggled with when I became a mom was, by the way, struggled with and felt liberated by was that I was no longer always available for meetings Sometimes a crisis would happen. Sometimes something needs to get done. And you know what? The kid needs to get picked up. And that (laughs) is priority. And so the meeting will end. You know, you might be at the Pentagon with some very important people and it's five o'clock and you got to go. Yep. I was talking to an executive about it one day and she said to me, 
look, Adi, you're going to miss a lot of meetings now that you're a mom, but you should never give up your seat at the table. The seat at the table should have our name embossed on it so that if anyone else is sitting in it, they know that when we show up, hey, hey, buddy, go go to the back row. <laughs> this is my chair. <laughs> and we shouldn't be, we ought not to be limited by the stereotypes that say we can't be outspoken. I think it's, it feels sometimes like a trap. Like if you speak up too much, you're aggressive, you're too opinionated. If you don't speak enough, then you're falling into this like stereotypical female role of being the wallflower and being quiet. And, and I don't know about other folks out there, but I've gotten, you know, very conflicting feedback. We need less of you in the room. Oh, now we need more, more of, of you, you in, in the, the room, room. <laughs> right? What I would say to anyone listening is everyone needs more of us in the room, more women in the room, period, the end. Because if there's more of us, then we see each other, then we're less in our heads. We suffer from less of that anxiety. We suffer from less of that analysis paralysis of, should I say something? Should I not say something? That guy's going to get mad at me. These are the thoughts that go through our heads. Absolutely. So can you tell us about a time where you felt like you were really in your element? I felt most in my element when I was speaking on the record as a spokesperson for the United States government in Serbo-Croatian to the media on a topic of foreign policy that involved defense technology. Because that was subject matter expertise, language skills, emotional intelligence to be able to connect with the journalist who's asking me the tough question, but wanting to convey something that puts everybody at ease. And demonstrating authority. But the reason that it was actually most in my element was I was still nursing my daughter and I literally needed to end the interview early so I could rush home and nurse her. And that was what was actually at the forefront of my mind and my heart and my soul throughout the interview. So if we can up our game in situations like that, there's nothing that we can't do. I love that. That's a perfect way to end uh, today's discussion. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. This has been really awesome. And I can't wait to hear more of these with all of the other leaders out there. That was our conversation with Sita Santi, partner and associate director of aerospace at BCG, in conversation with Adi Zolotov, partner and associate director in data science at BCG Gamma. So Corinne, what were some of your takeaways from this wonderful conversation? Sita, what a rock star. She's coming from this world of translatorship and she then is like, I can come into this world of technology and I can be that translator. That's my value add. What a beautiful way to think of it. Like I'm a natural born translator almost is kind of what she's saying. And data or information, technology, all these things that she works in are kind of like another language for other people, for outsiders. And that's kind of like another conversation we've had where we think about like, what are our own personal unique brands or what are we bringing to the table? Like that's kind of what she was saying here. And I just thought that was really interesting. I really resonate with that because I think it is another language. Man, if she can figure out how to make things like aerospace easy to understand, yeah, I yeah. mean, she deserves a medal. <laughs> Karen, this is one of the things I love about about the podcast is that more women, more men, more people need to hear that it is very okay to feel like, wait a minute, do I really belong here? It's human. It's just so human to doubt ourselves, right? And 
I think Sita has said this. I mean, all of our guests are just freaking phenomenal. But in one way or another, they've been like, yeah, I've doubted myself every now and then, right? And so it is ultra validating to continuously hear these women saying like, yeah, I also didn't think I belonged in the room and I still don't sometimes. Well, that's all for today. This has been In Her Element, a podcast from BCG. Join us every episode to hear meaningful conversations with women leaders in digital, business, and technology. Thank you so, so much for listening. Listening.